Well, how's everyone going? Um, like John said, uh, my name is Dustin Olin, and I'm graduating here in uh, the fall at UNO. Um, so with that being said, welcome to City Like You. Um, and I'm just going to be starting off by sharing three things about me, just in case you don't know me, which, um, yeah. So first off, I was born and raised in small town Nebraska, but cannot stand Nebraska athletics, especially Nebraska football. I know I'm a sinner. Um, second, I, uh, John already stole my thunder. I'm going to UNO, graduating in December. And then third, I love holidays. And um, with that being said, I know the 4th of July is only hours away. Um, so I wanted to bring that into my introduction, um, kind of do a double whammy with getting the introduction in, getting the holidays in. Um, so the 4th of July, not my favorite holiday. Um, and part of that reasoning is probably just to the loud noises when I'm trying to sleep. Um, but that probably just speaks more to my love of sleep rather than my um, slight dislike of the holiday. Um, so regardless, the 4th of July is really enjoyable for the most part. Um, and in the light of the 4th of July being only a few hours away, um, I just wanted to talk about it. So uh, 4th of July, it celebrates Independence Day. Every holiday celebrates something. So Independence Day, 242 years ago, um, we gained independence from England. Um, and so uh, how am I going to relate Independence Day to the message tonight? It's a great question. Um, and, and here's how I'm going to do it. The soldiers that were going to fight in this war, this Revolutionary War, um, when they were being asked if they would fight in it, they had two options. They could stay at home with their families, love on them, live a, live a good life, a safe life, keep their livelihood, or they could give up everything, go fight this war in the hope that something would be better in the future. Um, these soldiers' hearts were clearly there to serve, and they made themselves last so that one day they could possibly be first. And that's how I'm going to relate it, because tonight um, we're going to be looking at a story of a man seeking eternal life, um, and he has the exact opposite mindset. These soldiers put themselves last so that they could one day have a better life, they could one day be first. And this man, he, was, he, he desired so much to be good um, that he actually ended up being last. Um, and so with that, if you'll go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Um, I'm just going to read our text for tonight. Um, and as you guys are turning there, I'm just going to start because it should be on the screen. So, and he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except the Father. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, Teacher, all, all these have, I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, 
with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And so that's kind of the, uh, the point I'm trying to get at in this introduction and in this text um, the main point is going to be the first will be last and the last will be first. And I'll dive more into that later, um, but just have that on your minds. So, um, first image we see here. Um, sorry, let me back up. How does this text relate to what we've been going through this summer? If you're new to City Light U, uh, if this is your first time, welcome. We should have three groups of categories Um, We're going over the difficult sayings of Jesus this summer, um, and typically these sayings will fall under one or more of these three categories. So the first category is, Jesus, I don't get that. I don't understand what you are saying. Explain it to me like I'm a fourth grader. The second is, I don't know what to do with that. Okay, I get what you're saying. How do I apply that to my life? And then the third is, I don't like that. I get what you're saying. I get how I'm supposed to respond to this. Jesus, I don't like it. I don't want to do what you're calling me to do. And so the text that we are going to over tonight is a mixture between the second and the third category. Um, and in hopes of helping the text sink in, I've went ahead and divided it up into uh, three points. And each of those points are going to be a question. Um, so the first question is, what's the key to eternal life? And this comes from verses 17 through 22. Um, So the first image we see here is of a man running up and kneeling before Jesus, asking him how to inherit eternal life. And instead of Jesus saying, repent and believe, like most of us would expect, uh, he focuses first on why this man called him good. So let me just stop right here and say, this is what every Christian sharing their faith absolutely dreams of. It's a slow lob setting up a home run, right? In the past year, I've gone out on UNO's campus a few times uh, and had the opportunity to opportunity to talk to people about Jesus, Um, and I've had tons of success. I've talked to many people about Jesus. They've accepted the conversation, Um, but I've had equally as many rejections. However, none of these conversations have been someone else initiating that conversation and immediately hopping to, hey, Dustin, what's the key to eternal life? It just doesn't happen. And of all people to tell him how to inherit eternal life, you would think Jesus, the Son of God, the one who came to give eternal life in himself would be the one to answer him and share the good news of why he came. Um, But that being said, I think that him focusing first on why this man called him good uh, is important to understand the text going forward. So with that, I think the best way to answer this is uh, just to look at what the definition of good is. What is good? And so my first reaction to this was, well, why wouldn't he call you good teacher? you are good, you are a teacher. Jesus, you are a good teacher. Um, And while Jesus doesn't straight up deny this statement, he certainly doesn't embrace it. What we see is rather than Jesus challenging what this man said, he's challenging why he said it. And rather than correcting his statement of goodness, Jesus is actually correcting his perception of goodness. This man saw Jesus and he thought, Jesus, you know the way. How do I know the way? 
Jesus, I can see you are good enough. How can I become good enough? Jesus to this man uh, was not the holy and righteous son of God. He was just some teacher who could teach this man all that he knew and how to become like him. Eternal life to this man uh, was not Jesus himself, but rather something that Jesus just knew. And then the idea of good to this man was not something to hold on to for dear life and gaze upon with awe. Uh, it was something that he could just maybe achieve if he performed well enough. And I think this is something that we need to understand because theologically speaking, we know Jesus is good and we know we are not. We know that's the, the right answer. We know that. But how often do we get caught up in justifying our sin because we still think we're pretty good? Um, so with that, we are going to dive into what good actually means. Now, I think most people in this room would agree with me that the opposite of good is bad, right? Yeah? Well, have you ever sinned? Boom, you're not good, next point. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but in all seriousness, uh, this can be hard to understand because our entire lives, we've been immersed in a society that determines your worth based off of your, how good you are, and how good you are based off your actions. And this drives us to perform. And this is what it looked like in this man's day as well. He was very successful and had a great many possessions and wealth. Uh, and this was viewed as a blessing from God for doing life right. We see that this man took the Ten Commandments very seriously, uh, and he even claims to have kept them all since youth. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother, etc. Um, in the eyes of the law, he was blameless. On top of this, we see no inclination that this man was thought of like Zacchaeus, that wealthy tax collector whom everyone despised because he was a corrupt sinner. I say this to show that people thought of him as a good and honorable law-abiding man who just happened to be blessed with God's riches. That being said, this man believed, like many of us today, um, that our goodness is directly tethered to us. What we've done, where we've gone, who we've helped. And this led him to believe that he was capable of inheriting eternal life based on his own goodness and based on his own merit. It was merely another check mark on his to-do list. So we continue on with this story, uh, with Jesus listing off the Ten Commandments. And this man was feeling good, right? He's like, okay, yeah, Jesus, you're listing off the Ten Commandments. I know these. I've kept these. I'm feeling good. If this is what it is, I've got this in the bag. Um, but he's left feeling this short-lived sense of pride that he's achieved the creme de la creme, the, the, the cream of the cream, eternal life, and then Jesus tells him he lacks one thing. And he puts his victory lap on hold. So he really says, he says one thing, um, but he really gives this man two commands. Go, give up all your possessions, come and follow me. Two different commands. Um, so let's first look at the come and follow me half. This right here is where we finally get to the answer to this man's question. This is how you inherit eternal life. Come and follow me. You cannot inherit eternal life based on the law because the law does not have the power to save. Jesus is saying, only I do because only I am good enough. The world has raised us to think of good, the idea of good, as a skill that goes from zero to 100, and anything over 50 is viewed as above average and therefore good. Uh, but God's definition, it's much simpler, but of an infinitely higher caliber, and that's Jesus. Jesus is good, and that's it. So why give this man a second command? If you already answered it with the first command, 
why give it to him? It seems useless. It seems pointless. You're making this man go the extra mile for no reason. Well, I think the heart of what Jesus was trying to communicate to him was this. I'm calling you to follow me. I desire for you to, call, to follow me. But you simply can't follow me until you have first given up all your possessions and riches. Now remember that back in this day, wealth and possessions are a sign of blessing for living a good life. And so this, this statement was a dagger to this man's heart and to his pride um, because essentially what Jesus is saying here is that this man who was righteous before the law and deemed good by the world and worthy of these riches, um, someone who's built their entire life off of their goodness, he's got to renounce it all because he's simply not good enough. It's a dagger to his heart. He is crushed. And so we finish this encounter of Jesus and the rich man with the rich man just walking away because he's got so many things that he does not want to give up. He walks away sad. So we shift scenes, and Jesus is now focused on his disciples and those around him. Um, And with this comes my second question. Why is it hard to inherit eternal life? And this comes from verses 22 through 27. Uh, So everyone here, his disciples and everyone around, just saw what happened with the rich man. He had earned everything good in his life, and he just walked away because Jesus told him what he had to do, and it wasn't worth it to him. Jesus affirms what just happens by saying how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he says this twice, emphasizing the importance of it, and then goes on to say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Huh? (laughs) What? Jesus, what? You just, can you imagine trying to do that? A camel through the eye of a needle? It's not possible. Jesus, you just said it was difficult, and now you're saying it's impossible? Well, if we look at why this man walked away disheartened and sorrowful, uh, we can see a little clearer into what this means. This man walked away because he had a choice to make between a comfortable, temporary life with all his riches or an uncomfortable, eternal life. When, and he thought, well, I'd rather have these things than, I guess, not have them. Um, so I guess I'll take the comfortable, temporary life, right? It wasn't the richness itself that made him inheriting the kingdom impossible. Um, there's plenty of examples of rich people inheriting the kingdom of God in the Bible. Um, But however, it was the comfort being rich gave him that made it impossible. He put such a value on his possessions that when asked which is better, Jesus or my stuff, he chose my stuff, guys. Now, when you get down to it, it, it's a trade. That's what it really is. You're trading in your stuff. You're trading in your life for eternal life. I'm not rich. I don't uh, have bags of money that we talked about last week looking to invest it, looking to bury it. Um, I'm a college student who is broke. I, I have, I'm in the negative in terms of money. I'm in debt. I'm not rich. But I've got things, and I like my things, right? And, and that's what Jesus is getting at here. Wealth is such an extreme danger because it can so easily twist and corrupt our minds uh, where we place the value of things over the value of God, the value of creation over the value of creator. It can change our attitudes towards wealth um, where we may become arrogant because of it, or it could subtly present itself as the God of our lives 
um, putting our faith in it to provide ultimate joy. But possibly the most dangerous part about wealth is its ability to make us self-reliant and not dependent on God. Jesus, right before his encounter with the rich man, explains that the only way to inherit the kingdom uh, is to inherit it like a child, with utter dependence and utter reliance on God. If you look back to verse 15, um, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Why? For such belongs the kingdom of God. The more wealth and the more riches we are given, the less and less we feel like we have to be dependent on God. Because we, can already, we already have it or we can easily buy it. But in order to inherit the kingdom of God, like a child, we need to first view Jesus as better than anything we have, anything we can get. Uh, better than those Friday nights at the bar, better than that stellar house that you've been saving up for, better than that hour of sleep um, in the morning. Jesus has to be better. The late R.C. Sproul said this about God, us, uh, and our relationship with him. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude towards the one whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin of the most minute peccadillo? What are we saying to our creator when we disobey him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, God you're not, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I'm above and beyond your jurisdiction, and I have the right to do what I want to, not what you command me to do. Now, when I think about God and his goodness, I don't imagine him cherry-picking what is good uh, and just adding it to a stash of characteristics, right? I'll take a little bit of power and some grace, maybe some kindness, a double helping of love. No, that sounds like he's going through a drive through and ordering a Big Mac. Um, this relationship between God and good is not one that he just picked and chose what good was, um, but rather good is only good because it comes from God. That's the reason it's good, guys. So if you're taking notes, um, I went ahead and just shrunk this entire idea into one sentence. Um, so here it is. Good exists because God exists, and God is good because God is God. And I'll say that again. Good exists because God exists, and God is good because simply God is God, right? So if we see God is good, and we see why he is good, how can we believe for one moment in our right minds that we or anything sin has made a God in our lives, are worthy of holding that same title. It's ludicrous. So after this picture of impossibility that Jesus puts forth, uh, the taking of the largest animal in that area, and just fitting it through the smallest thing they could think of, the disciples are dumbstruck. They didn't know what atoms were. They didn't know anything that was smaller. The, the eye of a needle was probably the smallest thing they could think of, other than maybe grains of sand. Um, so seeing this, and so seeing this consequence of wealth and self-reliance, the disciples asked in a sort of sad sense, in a sort of um, melancholy, then who can be saved? Now I want you to pay attention um, to the fact that the disciples didn't ask, then what rich people can be saved? No, this was a general Jesus 
can anybody be saved? And that's when Jesus answered them by saying, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus painted this picture of impossibility by using an analogy. In no world is it possible to shove a camel through the eye of a needle. It's not going to happen unless something supernatural occurs, unless God is involved. It would only take a miracle that God can do. So this leaves the disciples seeking assurance, wondering, I've given up everything, right, Jesus? Jesus, affirm that I'm good to go. Affirm that I will inherit eternal life. And so Jesus turns to Peter, affirming what it is to give up everything for the sake of himself and for the gospel. So pushing into our last segment of our text, um, we ask the question, what does it mean to give up everything? And this comes from the last few verses, 28 through 31. Jesus goes on to say in these uh, that, who, that those who give up everything for his sake and for the gospel will receive a hundred times that. Their temporary riches now is only a speck compared to the eternal richness that will be given to them um, as part of God's family. And then he dives into something that is somewhat of a theme in Mark. The first will be last and the last first. And that's why I told you guys this at the beginning because this, um, this is integral to this text. Because um, without this, the other two points don't really make sense. So I would think that most of us want to be first because we like winning, right? Winning's good, winning's fun, we like it. Well, in order to be first, we must become last, and in order to win, we must lose. In order to live, we must die. These are all opposites, and these are all found in the Bible, um, and, and we're a logical people. So logically, this doesn't make sense to us. We don't, in order to get to that doorway, I don't, I'm not going to go backwards. I'm going to go forward. Like, we don't do the opposite. And so it logically does not make sense to us. Um, but how does that look in our lives? Jesus is calling to us, us to it. We've got to do it. We could look at some examples, uh, like the soldiers that I mentioned. Um, they had a servant's heart. They put themselves last. But the problem with this is they're sinful too. They're, they make mistakes. They're not perfectly last. And so here, the only example we can truly follow is Jesus. How many of you heard, have heard of the acronym WWJD? Most of you, if not all of you, yep. What does it mean? There we go, thank you. Um, see, everyone knows this, and they've got a nice, it's even got a nice ring to it. Um, but let me tell you why I don't like WWJD. Now, some of you are looking at me like, well, what's this guy saying? It's a good phrase. Um, no, but I heard this a little over a year ago, and it's stuck with me ever since. WWJD, what would Jesus do? Makes us put ourselves in Jesus' place and ask, if Jesus was faced with the same problems, the same dilemmas, the same hardships, what would he do? And sometimes this is used as a reason to show love rather than anger uh, when anger is just lurking in the backseat. And that's great and all. I love that. But this, this way of thinking just reduces Jesus to a role model and it makes the gospel just a good story. WWJD, what would Jesus do, should in fact be WDJD. What did Jesus do? Rather than Jesus being a role model, um, the gospel is the focus. See the change in that? Rather than imagining Jesus um, as this ordinary guy to follow that is just a, a good guy, we look at the life 
that he lived and the death that he died. And we look at the gospel in a whole new light. This type of change calls out the head knowledge that Jesus is better. And it puts in there heart knowledge that Jesus is truly better. So if you're asking yourself, Dustin, how do I become last? Uh, Hide the gospel in your hearts, guys. Take what Jesus did for you for all it's worth. A good and a perfect God desired so much for a sinful and a broken people um, to to once again know him that in order to make this possible, he sent his only son, his perfect son, to be brutally murdered by the very ones that he came to save. Can you imagine the love that that takes? Jesus was dead for three days, and then he resurrected himself. Something impossible for mankind. Can you imagine the power that that takes? Yet when he was alive on earth, he clothed that power in meekness. The Savior riding in on a mere donkey. Not showing off that he was superior to everyone else in every single way. Can you imagine the restraint, the restraint in the... Can you imagine the restraint in the servant's heart that Jesus said? Jesus was truly last, guys. I mean, I go, I go bowling and I get a strike and everyone at the table has to hear about it, right? I'm a prideful man. But if you really want to become last, set your eyes on Jesus, not as a role model worth following, but a God whom you want to wholeheartedly trust as a child who trusts his father. This is the type of trust that would give up his favorite toy just to have his dad come home an hour early from work and play with him. This is the type of trust that would give up everything just to be with him and have a deeper relationship with him. This is the type of trust that doesn't question why he shouldn't cross the road, because even though he himself has not experienced the danger that that presents, he trusts his father, and his father knows why. If you've been coming to City Light on Sunday mornings recently, Uh, you'll notice that we just started a series on Romans 8. And this is heavily focused on the newfound standing of those that profess Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior um, they have with God. Now, this standing is one that makes us adopted sons of the God of the universe who can cry out, Abba, Father. And this is just another way of saying, Daddy. Seems kind of weird, right? It's a little weird to say that, um, to call the God of the universe daddy. I don't even call my own dad daddy. That's just weird. But what would it look like if instead of chasing after independence and control that we so desire, we just crawled into our daddy's lap and let him take care of us? Romans 8 doesn't just stop at saying we are children of God, but it continues on to say that we're heirs. This heirship gives us an inheritance, and it's it's the most valuable inheritance that ever exists. It's an inheritance that is God. That is our inheritance. So Jesus knows what he's talking about when he says, it is hard for the rich person to inherit eternal life uh, because the love of our things acts as such a strong barrier that we put in between us and God. It's not the money that's the root of all evil, right? It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. So can we trust that Jesus is better and whatever else we think that will give us the satisfaction that we so desire, will ultimately ruin us. God wants us to enjoy our life, uh, and he wouldn't call us to give up everything without giving us something much better. Jesus is that something much better. Uh, By giving everything up that the world puts a price on, we are gaining everything that the world cannot put a price on because its value is priceless. 
The change that occurs in the heart of a believer, dependent on God's grace, starts from the inside. It's a heart transformation. It doesn't follow, or it doesn't come from following a checklist of rules and procedures. So in closing tonight, uh, I want to address two groups of people. The first group, if you have put your faith in Jesus already, you know that he's good and he is better. If you call yourself a Christian, you know that you cannot save yourself and the only hope you have is to humble yourself, break your pride, and accept God's grace. I want to speak to you. God, in his rich mercy, has called you his child and has softened your heart where you can now see things that you once couldn't. We've experienced a personal, life-changing relationship with the one who has created us, and we can be confident that what he offers us is truly better. I ask that as you look at your current relationship with God and you evaluate it, um, you, you go ahead and you ask yourself, am I someone who is trying to perform for God, just viewing him as some distant figure who is just worried about how good I'm doing? Or am I someone that, that can just trust in God and just crawl into his lap, letting him take care of me, giving up everything and giving it to him? Giving up everything does not mean uh, not enjoying what God has given you. It simply means giving God control of your life and not letting that which he's given you control you. So the other group I want to speak to uh, is the person that hasn't yet had a relationship with Jesus. The gospel we preach is an exclusive one in the sense that it, it does say that not everyone will inherit eternal life. In fact, it, it goes as far to say that the only group that will accept eternal life um, is those that stop living for themselves because they know they can, cannot save themselves. Those that, that put to death the desires of the flesh and accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their lives. But this same gospel is inclusive in the sense that no one deserves an eternal life. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Parker doesn't deserve it. Yet, where it was impossible with man, God made a way. Clay, a few weeks back, uh, he, he made an analogy of us being trapped in a burning building with no doors, no windows, no way out, and a fireman coming through and just breaking through the wall. We'd be stupid to think, ah, I'm not going to go through that. It, it, we're going to take the way out, right? How gracious of that. Yeah. So it is inclusive in the sense that none of us deserve it, um, and it's exclusive. But here's the thing. Eternal life is exclusive, but is far more exclusive or inclusive than it ever should have been. And that's solely by God's grace. Let's pray. Father God, um, I just thank you for your goodness um, and for your love of those that don't deserve it. Man, it is so comforting just, just crawling to you, accepting your love, accepting you as our Lord and Savior and as, as our God. We could not do this life without you um, because anything we'd be trying to do would just fail us. So God, I, I pray as we go into this next week, um, we would just keep our eyes on you. Uh, we, we would think about this uh, this message and this passage that we would truly strive to give up everything um, and just trust that you are better. 
that we would do this this week um, and, and we would just continually grow in this. Father, we, we love you. We thank you um, for all that you've done. And we do this in your name. Amen.